open our Bibles this morning and turn in them to our study of the Gospel of Luke. We are returning to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, it's been a couple weeks since we've been here, but since the beginning of our study in this Gospel, we have had a continual reminder upon our minds as part of, in part really by the author who has penned this, Luke himself, which is being driven by the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder in order to focus our attention. It, it came back to us, or it came to us way back in chapter 1. I referred to it from time to time at the very beginning. And it's found in the words of Luke to his friend in whom he has penned this entire gospel. It is the reason for which Luke has written this gospel. Verse 4 of chapter 1 says, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So that you might know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught, i.e. the things that you have been taught concerning Jesus Christ, the things that you have heard about this one whom has come and many have proclaimed much about who you have heard about the salvation that is through him. Look at other gospel writers. The gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus Christ came not to be served, but rather to serve. Specifically, Jesus Christ came to give Himself as a ransom for many others. That's the purpose that Mark puts there and the reason why Jesus came. So Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to earth get this, to serve us. To serve that which He has created in the ultimate service to the Father out of love for the Father. He came to us, He came to serve because we desperately needed His service. We needed the service of God in the flesh because of our own willful sin. Each one of us needs His righteousness. Or we don't have His righteousness, there is no possible way of being acceptable before God. Without the righteousness of God, there is no hope for anyone who desires to be with God, who desires to stand with God. Many claim that they are right with God, and yet they deny Jesus Christ. You cannot have a relationship with God the Father without going through His Son, because the only righteousness that God accepts is the righteousness of His own, which is the righteousness of God Himself. But without His righteousness, we have no eternal hope of glory. Without the, the righteousness of Christ, we have no hope of everlasting peace. Without His righteousness, we are simply left to our own unacceptable righteousness. And so we have in the Scriptures, gospel after gospel after gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And in Luke's Gospel, Jesus Christ is portrayed as the Son of Man. As the Son of Man. Luke gives us an account and an accurate and historical uh, following of Jesus as the perfect man. 
He is the perfect man who came, as Mark says, to seek and to save sinful people. And so Luke has been showing us since the very beginning verses that Jesus Christ is indeed God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. He is the perfect man. He is the Son of Man. Well, the Jewish people in the first century rejected that and they needed to be shaken from their cold works religion back to an understanding of the promised Messiah. And every person and every religion that has followed in the footsteps of the cold religious works of Judaism back in the first century need to be shaken from their religious foundation. They need to be called away from that religious effort that man-made good deeds supposedly will make you righteous before God, make you acceptable before God. You need to be shaken from that into a relationship with Jesus Christ who is the only Savior. One whose righteousness is acceptable before God is Jesus Christ. And so Luke, like the other Gospel writers, has systematically been highlighting Jesus Christ. He is the one person who who he is in his personhood uh, what he is teaching through his preaching uh, his message the message of Jesus Christ is open to those who will willingly listen to it and embrace him as savior those who will hear with ears and understand in their heart those who would hear the word of God and therefore do the word of God in fact in Luke chapter 8, just at the end of verse 21, you have, beginning in verse 16, this parable of the lamp that you don't hide the news of Jesus Christ under something when you know Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus' mother and his brothers, his physical family, come to him because they're concerned about him. And and so they come to him in the crowd and they say, hey, listen, your brother and sister and, and your mother... They're outside. They want to see you. And it's interesting. Jesus answers in verse 21, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. I wonder if we think of families like that. That our real families are our spiritual family. That we love our physical families. They are the ones God put us in place of and we are to be a testimony to them and yet they are not to become the idol of our eyes in which we serve them greater than we serve the family that we will spend eternity with which is our spiritual family my family is the one who does the word of God and so there is something happening here Jesus Christ has been highly highlighted by the Apostle, by Luke himself. And so we come to this final section in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, and there's another transition happening. Something something different about the Son of Man is being highlighted so that all will have certainty about what we believe. So that we will not be confused, so that the foundation on which we stand, so the things in which we believe aren't shaken by foolish notions that men try to throw our way or by the difficulties of life that might come our way. And so what we begin to see on display here is not a direct message from Jesus Christ as we saw in the previous 
verses of chapter 8 with the parable of the sower, what we begin to see here isn't who he is in his humanity per se that is on display, but rather what we begin to see here is the supernatural divine power of Jesus Christ. The supernatural divine power of Jesus Christ is now going to be on display. Jesus has complete and absolute control over everything in the universe. We ought not be in any kind of doubt about that. We ought not be mistaken about that in any kind of way. As the late R.C. Sproul once said, there isn't one radical molecule flying throughout the universe for which Jesus doesn't have control over. Now think about that in your life. Think about as we sit here right now and every detail of our life. Christ is overseeing it all and has absolute sovereign control over it all. And the implication of what we will see concerning that is going to carry us through the next several weeks in our study. Because of his absolute control, we must grasp. We must we must let it just rest upon us. We must swim in the pool of this reality with life-changing faith, with faith that causes us, with faith that is followed in such a way that it changes how we live. We must know that Jesus is absolutely sufficient for every situation. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is absolutely sufficient for every situation. If we go away with nothing else this morning, I want us to go away with that. Go away with that so firmly locked in your heart that you live by it in every moment. Jesus Christ is absolutely sufficient for you. He is absolutely sufficient. From Luke chapter 8, verse 22, all the way to the end of the chapter. There are four great miracles that take place. Four great miracles that Jesus Christ does, and they encompass for us the entire scope of human circumstance. The entire scope of our existence. They cover immobilizing fear. Situations in life whereby fear of situations and fear of circumstances in which we have no control over, where we, by which we cannot control the details of it, these, we are going to see that Christ is absolutely sufficient. They cover the spirit world, the world that we cannot see, the demon world and Satan himself, in which you find that demons possess people and have possessed those who could not be controlled by humanity in any kind of way. And they inflict undue pain upon humanity and suffering within humanity, and yet Christ is sufficient for that. They cover the reality of incurable sickness. Worries about health. Worries about what will we do if we come down with some kind of incurable disease and then Christ is sufficient for that. And then they cover the end result of all of life. The reality of physical death. Christ is even sufficient there. 
We are going to see that in each and every case, the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ to overcome and to be the ultimate end for those who believe in him, that is going to be on display. That will be front and center for us as we look at this, as it encompasses issues of all of life. In the first scenario, the perfect storm is set up so that seasoned seamen could, who could safely navigate any kind of maritime emergency get into a place in which they cannot control it and therefore are find themselves in uncontrollable fear. In the second, there's a demon-possessed man that no man could control. No human could bind him. No human could control him. And yet Jesus comes along and does just that. In the third scene, there's a woman who has a disease that has gone on for quite some time and no doctor and no medical staff and no procedure could cure it. Nothing could ever take care of it. It seemed to be hopeless and yet Jesus comes along and it is enough. He is enough. And then in the last miracle, there's the death of a child. At all the best intentions and all of the best planning couldn't avoid. And in each one of those, Jesus is the absolute sovereign answer. He is sufficient for it all. And so I want us to walk through these over the next few weeks. And as we do, it's it's just my hope, it's my prayer that our hearts are going to be encouraged, that our hearts are going to be strengthened, that our faith is going to grow in that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, knowing that He is sufficient for my day. He is sufficient for me and whatever God brings to me. Look at what it says just in this first miracle beginning in verse 22 down through verse 25. Now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And so they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. Here we, we find an incident of out-of-control circumstances. Out of control circumstances, an incident of unparalleled danger. This is a moment in which the best men of the day had no control. 
They have no power over the situation. There was a time in the history of mankind, by the way, when man was given limited control. Remember back in Genesis chapter 1, God had created the creation and God clearly determines that man would rule over the rest of creation. Man would have dominion over it. God made him to have rule over the rest of what he had created. Man was to care for it. Man was to maintain it with honor. And, and in return, God had made it such that men, as man cared for what he had created, it would care for him. Man would cultivate the ground and man would gain sustenance and help for life from the ground. But man chose to go against God. Man willfully said, we're going to do it differently. And man sinned against God. And through his sin, man was, in a sense, removed from his place of rule over all of the earth. And the earth was dramatically changed as a result of his sin. Now there's the prince of the power of the air, the one who rules in the hearts of disobedient. There is, there is this dominion that the satanic forces that Satan himself has been granted to have. And so life on earth now is a struggle. Dominion on earth, Ephesians 2 clearly says, was now under the guise of the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this age. And so because of man's sin and because God has allowed the ruler of this age to have his way as God would allow it, the result of the earth is trouble. The world faces disasters. The world faces pain. The world faces all kinds of sorrows and all kinds of wars and difficulties. And there are natural disasters that have monumental consequences on thousands of people across the globe. Every evil that plagues our world exists because of the consequences of sin. And listen, man has no power in and of himself, to correct it. Man has no power to correct it. Man has no power in himself to reverse the consequences of his sin. I don't care how many gas stoves you change into electric stoves. He is insufficient to affect any real or lasting change of his life. Every time man attempts to affect change, it only reveals and produces more kinds of trouble. He cannot change the problems of the environment. He cannot cause droughts to stop and famines to be no more. He cannot do that. He cannot rid himself of disease and sickness. It will not happen. Each and every time a solution is given, it only produces more problems. And listen, even more than man's physical problems are his spiritual and moral problems. Man looks to solve his own morality troubles in his own world as he looks around every dark corner of his mind. He only finds another disorder and another dysfunction. Tries to overcome them all and they only produce more. The problems of man's psychological and moral decline are endless. 
Mankind has no real answer in himself. So the power to reverse the sinful curse, the power to usher in some kind of utopian world in which there is no more pain, in which the world has no more disaster, in which there is no sickness, no death, that death is abated for as long as possible, is only an impossibility for man. It's inconceivable in the mind of many. In order to do away with all that is wrong in our world would take some real power. Would not take the, the supposed intellect of humanity and its fallenness to figure out some way, and even in order to create some kind of artificial intelligence that somehow would go beyond the one who programmed it to do so. It's just utter foolishness. It would take a kind of real power, a kind that God showed in creating the world, that kind of power to call something from nothing. A power that is infinite, a power that is divine, it would take power that could recreate that which has been corrupted. Man has the ability to destroy the world, but he has no power to fix it. He has no power to overcome what he has done. He is insufficient for that task. The Bible clearly tells us that there is only one with that kind of power, and it's God himself. God is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that this God is none other than Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And get this, he upholds all things by the word of his power. We sit here and breathe his air this morning because it's his power that is upholding it. We sit here and live on his world because it is his power that is upholding it. When he made purifications of sins. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 goes on to say, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is Jesus Christ that upholds all things by the word of his power. He speaks and it is done. It is Jesus Christ who holds it all together. It is Jesus Christ who sustains it all. It is Jesus Christ who has absolute control over all things. Jesus Christ who ensures that every particle in this and every universe that exists does exactly what he ordains it to do. Listen, if he's the only one who has the power to create, then he is the only one who has the power to to put it all back together to its original purpose and its original perfection. If he is the only one to whom this power belongs, then upon whom must we completely entrust ourselves? If it is Jesus Christ who is the power to uphold all things, who has created all things, and through whom we breathe and have our being, then it is upon whom that we must trust. It is Jesus Christ. 
And this is Jesus' whole point with these miracles. Jesus' whole point is to show us that he is absolutely sufficient for all of life. Jesus Christ came into this world in part to demonstrate that divine power so that you and I would know that he is God. So that you and I would have no mistake about it in our minds, that we would know that he is God, and thereby knowing that, that in the details of life, we would simply rest in him. Christ is the sufficient one. He has all the power over nature. He has the power over the demonic realm. He has the power over sickness and death. He has alone the power to bring spiritual life out of a dead soul. So this then is a glimpse into the eternal kingdom of God as we look at these. This is real kingdom power. We are getting a preview of the kingdom to come in which Jesus Christ demonstrates his divine power. You say, how so? Well, because the kingdom to come, the kingdom in which we will gather together with our Savior will be a recreated kingdom where there is no disaster. It will be a kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth, a kingdom where Satan is no more and there is no demonic activity. It will be a kingdom where there is no sickness and death. Those are gone. And the proof of who Jesus is is shown through his absolute power and sufficiency over everything on earth. And so in our, in our text here this morning, verses 22 to 25, Jesus shows his sufficient power over the natural world. He says, I have power over it all, and here he is showing it. And so for our time this morning, I just want to simply break this under two headings. The perfect storm and the power of Christ. The perfect storm and the power of Christ. Verses 22 through the first part of 24 is the perfect storm. And the second part of verse 24 to the end, verse 25, is the power of Christ. Well, let's just begin with that. Perfect storm. Notice what he says. Now on those one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And so they launch out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. A fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake, and they began to be swamped and in, be in danger. And they came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, we are perishing. And stop right there. Notice that Luke tells us that it was on one of those days. One of those days indicating that there were many days that Jesus Christ was around and he was teaching. In fact, if you go to Mark's gospel in the parallel passage, the gospel says that it was the same day. It was the same day of what? The same day that Jesus was teaching the parable of the sowers. It was on that day when evening had come. In fact, it says in Mark 4, verse 35. <clears throat> Apparently, and we could draw that conclusion even in Luke from putting together the other gospel writers that Jesus had been teaching for some time on the shore of Sea of Galilee. The parable of the seeds was taught by the Sea of Galilee, as we saw. It was now approaching 
According to Mark's gospel, the end of a busy day of ministry, and Jesus is going from town to town, village to village, as he has done, teaching, and he's healing the people who were coming to him. So his power has been on display over disease constantly. His disciples had been there. They were seeing this over and over again. You would think that seeing that, you would kind of catch the clue. And yet, like even us, we forget. We don't. Pay attention. We know who God is. We know who Jesus Christ is, God in the flesh. And sometimes, many times, when it comes to the deals of life, the realities of life, we don't rely on Him. He's good for our final eternity, but our day-to-day, we just say, take the day off. We got this. And so, at the end of the day, Jesus Christ, being fully man, is tired. He's tired. And as soon as the opportunity comes, he sleeps. Interesting contrast to the men who were the sailors in the boat. Jesus Christ is fully dependent upon the Father, fully rested in the Father, fully an example of faith, trusting in the Father. He's not worried about anything. He just falls asleep. Mark's gospel tells us that there wasn't just one boat, that it was a small flotilla of boats that went along. And all of those boats would have been similar kinds of boats. They would have been small fishing boats commonly used on the Sea of Galilee for for fishing, just like Peter and John's business was. They would go out fishing, and it was a small wooden kind of craft, small, usually open on the top so they could work and get around, had a sail on it. And the plan was just to go across the Sea of Galilee. It would have probably been maybe a six-mile trip, maybe a seven-mile trip, depending on how they went, short by their standards on any day's trip that they would have used. And so they made this trip many times, and so they wouldn't have taken any other provisions with them because at the end of the day they would have returned anyhow. And so it was a small journey to them. And so verse 22 simply says to us that he, he and his disciples get into a boat, And he says to them, let's go over to the other side. And so they launch out. They launch out. So this little flotilla of boats is now launched from the shore. People no doubt left on the shore because there were so many following him. They go out into the sea. Probably a nice day. We get no indication that the day was bad, that there was no pending storm coming. So they launch out. And then verse 23 says, but there's a strong contrast happening here. But as they were sailing along, it wouldn't have taken them long, but they're sailing along. Jesus falls asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descends upon the lake and they begin to be swamped and be in danger. This now is the perfect storm. Why, you say? Well, because it was somewhat unordinary, not that, it, not that the Sea of Galilee didn't have storms, it certainly did have storms, but the, these weren't an everyday occurrence, the storms like this, and yet it was just what God had planned on this very day after a long day of ministry to bring all of these fishermen to the place that God wanted them. God is orchestrating it all. God has it all under his control. God wants them at the place of desperation. God wants them at the place where they can do nothing. 
Storms are uh, often happen at times on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee sits approximately 682 feet below sea level. Surrounded by hills, you've probably seen pictures of the Sea of Galilee. There's hills around it. And the wind comes from time to time down the valleys and over the Sea of Galilee, usually from the west, usually off the Mediterranean that way, through the valleys onto the lake. And these kind of winds are often sudden. They, they can be furious winds at times, and oftentimes it can reach hurricane force. Hurricane force winds start around 72 miles an hour. So that's the beginning of the hurricane force wind, and it stirs up the water to such a degree that if a boat is capsized, if you take on too much water and capsize, it's probably sure that you are going to die. Well, this apparently is one of those storms, perfectly ordained by God for them. Notice it says the gale winds descended, these are hurricane force winds. We don't know the exact strength of them, but they are certainly 70 plus mile an hour winds coming down the valley across that little small body of water. And they are beating against the boat. They're beating against this little flotilla of boats. And of course, where the boat focusing our highlight on the boat that Jesus is in, because that's the whole point of this. And they are being beaten by the waves. The gigantic waves are now coming over the side of the boat, filling the boat with water, and it's beginning to be, notice the word, swamped. Swamped. It's an interesting word. It's used only twice, two other places in, in, in the New Testament. One is in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It says there, when the days were approaching for His ascension, the word approaching there is the same translated word as the word here, swamped. In other words, when the days were, were about to be uh, to the fruition, to the fullness. Acts 2, verse 1, it says, when the days of Pentecost had come, that, that's, there's the same idea, it's being swamped. It's the Pentecost had come, it was full. So the idea is to be fully complete, filled up to the brim, if you will, completely full, no room for any more. The boat is filled with water at a point now in this storm where it's serious trouble. That's why it says, and they began to be swamped and be in danger. Before the swamping, yes, they were, they were in danger, but they weren't desperate for themselves. They were, they were seasoned sailors. They knew how to deal with a storm. But now it's gotten to the place where it's completely full. And so these seasoned fishermen can't handle it. Wouldn't have been the first time that they'd seen a storm. They certainly would have seen storms on the water. This was their life. They were on the sea daily. They would have known how to handle some difficulty at sea. And to heighten the situation, they're with Jesus all day. They're probably tired themselves physically from a long day of beating on having the sun beat down on them, walking from village to village. And in the midst of this storm, they're doing everything that they thought of doing to save themselves and the boat. But all of this was part of the divine plan of God. 
storm is howling. That's part of the divine plan of God. The waves are about to swamp their boat. They're probably drifting out of control because they're spending a lot of time trying to get the water out and the boat isn't being steered. And you notice the one who sustains it all, the one who has created it all, in fact, the one who's orchestrating it all is asleep. Not worried about it at all. What a contrast. What a contrast. The Bible tells us to be like me, right? Be like Jesus Christ. Live like Jesus Christ. Trust like Jesus Christ. Here is Jesus Christ in his full humanity asleep during a hurricane. Jesus is asleep in the boat as it's being swamped. Like I said, this is the perfect storm. They have nowhere else to turn. They have nowhere else to turn but to turn to Jesus Christ. They're at their place of desperation. It is in danger. They, they can do no other. They have no place to turn but to Christ, and that is exactly where he wants them. Remember when they left shore? When they left shore, they assumed that they were in control. Oh, you want us to go to the other side? No problem. Get in the boat. We'll take you over there. Take us maybe a few hours. We'll just go across this little lake. and It'll be no big deal. We got this under control. And now they are in total desperation. Everything is out of control. They have no control over any of it. They're in the place where God has their complete and undivided attention. Beloved, sometimes that's exactly what God has to do with us to get our attention. We say far too often in our lives, that's okay, God. I know this is difficult. I have this under control, though. I can solve this problem. I've been there before. Sadly, much to my own chagrin. Said to myself in my own life, I can just juggle the finances in a certain way in order to have the control of this dilemma. Oh, I'll just, I'll just try to switch the situation around in some kind of way. Maybe you've been in some situation and you say, I'll just manipulate this person or adjust this circumstance. Everything will be okay when that happens. And then the potential trouble will just pass and my heart will be settled because I won't be in trouble anymore because that's really what I want. I just don't want trouble if circumstances were just a little bit different, then I'd be settled. You ever been like that? Sometimes God has to get us to the place where our total best efforts to solve the trouble just won't help. Why? Just so that we would rest and rely upon him only. And that's what he's doing with these men on that day in the boat. They're about to go under. <laughs> Their boat is sinking. They're about to be torn apart by the storm. They have fear for their lives. And they had to run out of human solutions and go to the only solution they could go to. And the only solution that really was a solution, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> 
probably thinking in their minds, maybe, maybe the one who caused that crippled man to walk could give us some help right now. Maybe Jesus, the one who healed the leprous man, could do something for us. If he could do those things, if he could heal that man, maybe he can do something with nature also. And so notice what they do. They come to Jesus, verse 24, and they wake him up. And they say, Master, almost incredulously, Master, Master, Almost like, why are you sleeping? How in the world can you sleep? We are perishing. Master, master, we are about to die. This is desperation, beloved, at its best. Remember, these are seasoned sailors. They know their business. We are about to die. Put your name there. This is us in uncontrollable crisis. This is us when we can't control it. We, we've tried. We've tried to do everything we can, but we can't control it. It's, it's outside of us, and, and we now know it's outside of us. Jesus, if you don't help me in this situation, I might even die. I hope you can hear your voice in those words. I can. I can hear mine. I hear my voice of desperation crying out to God so that He would sustain my life now on this earth. Sustain me on this earth. I mean, if, if, if we go from this earth, what worse can happen? And all along... What I have forgotten is that Christ, being in Christ, I already have received everything I'd always and would ever need. In Christ, I have everything. And far too often, we turn to the Lord only when we have exhausted every other deceptive resource. When sickness strikes, when death comes to a loved one, Tragedy of every kind hits. Far too often we turn to God just like these disciples did. We turn to Him only after we've tried all our own solutions. You see, what they should have been saying in their hearts in belief in Jesus, well, if Jesus is calm about this, then why should I be not calm about this? If this isn't surprising him, if he can sleep during a hurricane, then why am I all upset about the hurricane? Why am I stirred to the point where I fear for my life? This is what the disciples are wondering in their perfect storm. Where's Jesus? Doesn't he care about me? Where's God? And Jesus is about to help them with their fear. And he's going to help them by means of a gentle rebuke and a display of his power. Notice the power of Christ. He got up, verse 24, rebuked the wind, the surging waves, and they stopped. And it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? 
As I read that, I kind of chuckle to myself at the question, and yet it's a frightening question, is it not? Where's your faith, beloved? Where don't you trust? Where where's your faith? I, I don't think I, I don't want us to read this with too little astonishment. We need to be astonished. We don't want to be unaffected simply by the economy of words that are being used here to display this to us. Jesus Christ immediately, you notice, stops the storm. They've tried everything. They've tried everything under their power, everything that they could do. Nothing worked. And Jesus, in a moment, stops the storm. In fact, Mark's gospel of this account says, hush, be still. That's what he said. Hush, be still. Three words in the English. Listen, this is supernatural power. This is a miraculous event. In other words, this just doesn't happen by chance. Or it's not a normal reality. This is God stepping into his creation and doing something that isn't seen. I have been in hurricanes. I have spent days in buildings inside a hurricane. And I can tell you this, from my experience with hurricanes, they just don't stop in a moment. I've never seen one just stop in a moment. But at the words of Jesus, it becomes calm, more calm than it has ever been before. In fact, verse 24 says... That the wind stopped, or the wind and the surging waves, they stopped, and it became calm. That's an interesting word because the wording indicates that it became in a moment's notice like a sea of glass. They went from one moment being swamped to it being like a sea of glass. Not over time. Not over the next hour, in a moment. It went from chaos to tranquility in an instant. In other words, the calm was so quick and so complete, the sea immediately stopped churning, the wind ceased to blow even for a little bit, even a hint of wind. Think about it. Let it sit on your mind. Let it sit on your heart. At the word of the creator of the universe, the only response of the storm was to do what he said. You know why it's raining outside? Because God said, let it rain. You know why the wind stops blowing? Because God says enough. The storm came on quickly, and the storm left even faster. Why? Because Jesus Christ had intervened in the circumstance. Their their physical problem ended 
The storm ended, the physical storm ended, but the greatest lesson needed to be driven home in their hearts. The greatest lesson is in verse 25. Jesus said to them, where is your faith? I love that because normally if we were writing it, we'd say, man, these fishermen didn't have the skills to handle the storm. And Jesus simply says, you don't trust me. Why aren't you trusting me? We look at the human reality. We look at what we can do. And yet Jesus says, you need to look to me. Jesus says, where's your faith? In other words, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Don't you have faith? You see, the real problem wasn't the storm outside. The real problem wasn't even the circumstance that God had allowed them to be in. The real problem was that they were fearful and anxious because they were refusing to trust God. That's the real problem. Jesus is simply saying to them, don't you truly believe who I am? You've already seen my power on display. You know my compassion for you already. You know that I love you. You should know that I have the power to help. And you should know that I will help because I have compassion on you. But even more importantly than all of that, all of that reality about me, even if I allow you to take your last breath today in the circumstance in which you are in, you will instantly be with me in the glories of heaven. So what do you have to be fearful of? (coughs) Intellectually, we know that. But in practice, we're like the disciples. We are weak. Weak. And what is God doing? God's strengthening their faith. They're in this spiritual, circumstantial gymnasium for their spiritual life, and God is exercising their faith, strengthening their faith muscle. They knew Psalm 46 better than we do. God is our refuge and strength, a very what? Present help in time of trouble. Not a distant help, not a far off help, a very present help in time of need. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar with foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, And then verse 11 says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Do we believe that? Oh, listen, I'm preaching to my own heart when I say these words, when I hear these words, I'm preaching to my own heart. Pastor Terry, do you believe this? You see, beloved, like these men, Jesus is saying to us that those who are aware of God's power, God's resurrecting power to change our very life, the power of God, we know Jesus Christ. We know we love Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ loves us. Then there is no reason to be fearful of anything. I heard a mentor of mine say once, God can and will take care of his children. God can, and God will take care of his children. There is no hardship. There is no danger through which he cannot or will not take them. God's love and power will see us through any storm. 
See, part of God's love, part of God's desire for us is seen through strengthening our faith. Why? Because we're prone to wander. We are prone to disbelief. We are prone to go by our own way. We know God is sufficient. We know he's the provider of all we need. We, we've read the word of God. We, we hear those words taught. But we also know how easy it is to fall. We know how easy it is for us to fail to trust his provision. And when we do that, we, we can fall into despair. We can fall into heartache and trouble in our own heart. And God desires to strengthen our faith. God doesn't want his children walking around, moping around like, woe is me, I can't believe this is happening to me. Notice what happens in verse 25. After he asks the question, Luke writes, they were fearful. Well, they were fearful before. Now they're fearful again. They're fearful and amazed. And they're saying to one another, who is this? that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. I love that. There was a supernatural calm upon the sea as they're looking out, and yet there is a supernatural uncalmness in their hearts. They're fearing something in their hearts. Before they were fearing the circumstance, now they're fearing the right thing. Now their fear is put in the right place. They had a new and stronger reverential fear of God. And isn't that what Proverbs tells us? The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom, skillful living, right? Living out the things that God has told us to live, to walk according to him, to walk by faith. We walk by faith when we fear God, when we reverentially respect and honor God. And so the same Jesus who calms the sea is the same Jesus who works today in our circumstances. This is the whole point. These guys were seasoned in what they did and they had no control over it. And so they had to run to Jesus. That's what we must do, beloved. We must run to Jesus. He's coming one day. He's going to recreate it all into a perfect new heaven and new earth. And those who believe upon him, he gives eternal life to them in him. And in him, you and I, no matter what's happening in life, can just have a calm a settled rest, knowing that he controls it all. Knowing that no matter what happens, doesn't really matter. Jesus is absolutely sufficient for every situation. He's sufficient for it all. Whether that's sickness, whether that's some spiritual struggle going on, whether that's some physical reality going on, whether that's even death, Jesus Christ is sufficient for every situation. Uncontrollable storm, Jesus controls. And then he's going to control the uncontrollable demoniac on the other side of the water when they arrive 
sure. We'll see that next time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've been challenged by the truth of this text. You are the creator of all things. You bring all things about. By the word of your power, you sustain all things. It seems almost mystical and mysterious to us because we convince ourselves in many ways that because we can't see you, that somehow you can't give us any help. And yet we have you living in us. You are with us walking with us in the circumstance, in the moment, in the time. It's under your care. It's under your control. And oh, Lord, we are prone to wander. We feel it. We challenge your sovereignty and we sin against your great name by not following you. Forgive us for foolishly following our own paths and not being humble in your, your hand. We know you care for us. You sent your son to die in our place. What greater care could we ever know? So Lord, as the circumstances of life come, as the difficulties arise, as the world grows more and more wicked and hateful of you, whatever you allow for us in our life, may it be that our faith would be exercised unto the point of unbreaking strength, that we would run to you, trust you, and be settled and rested like you were in the midst of the storm. Thank you. Thank you for showing us your power. Thank you that we can have a certainty about the things we believe and that we can live to your glory because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.